join us in the dustiest corners of the video store, the back row of the grindhouse, the furthest regions of celluloid. This is Video Store Nightmares. Hello and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the traumatic films of the VHS era. Tonight, we are talking about a really special movie, 1975's pure exploitation flick, Poor Pretty Eddie, also known as a host of other things. Uh, I'm joined by Leland. Leland, what the fuck is this movie? You uh, you totally just like destroyed the formula we had going for like fifty something episodes, and I, I don't, I don't know. I don't you know can pretend I did, and and I'll edit around it, or you can just <laughs> flow with it. Listeners, you can find 1975's Poor Pretty Eddie, aka Black Vengeance, on YouTube and Tubi. Um, way easier to find the last couple films we covered and like luke said this has a ton of different titles and allegedly a lot of them are different than what we watched but we are specifically tackling the eddie version yeah i watched the vhs that was released by mark five this is i i only have a few movies from them i think they're very small uh, production house but it's a cool big box tape I, I think it's it's really rare um let me go ahead and read the back it says macon county line chilled you texas chainsaw massacre killed you now see poor pretty eddie the nightmare thriller of the year blue singer liz weatherly on a rural holiday has her bentley breakdown on a lonely road seeking help at a rundown tavern motel she encounters kino a hulking handyman and the intense bellhop bartender eddie collins who is the lover of bertha the ramshackle s resort owner Bertha wants to be rid of liz right away but eddie makes sure the car remains immobile that night Eddie goes to Liz's room and repeatedly rapes her. When she complains to easygoing Sheriff Orville, he takes her to Justice of the Peace Floyd, who stages a kangaroo court at his favorite honky-tonk, where Liz's clothes are ripped away to examine her for bruises. Eddie goes berserk and is clubbed senseless. The next day... <laughs> The next day, Eddie tells the overjoyed Bertha there is to be a wedding, but his plans are even more macabre, leading to the gory, nightmarish climax. Do we even need to do a rundown? Because that was the entire film. Yeah, I figured we could get the plot out of the way first so that we can... I mean, we're going to go through the whole thing, but there are so many scenes in this movie that I just want to know why and how. And it, like, how did it get to film so I could see it? I've, there is there's so much here to, to talk about, listeners. Even if you have not seen this movie and you just heard that description, go watch it and then come back because it, this movie needs to be seen to be believed. 
And if you can do it without any trouble, watch the one on Tubi because the one on YouTube, or at least the ones that I were able to, that I was able to find, um, they looked like they were ripped straight from VHS using a toaster powered by potatoes. Yeah, Mark V is not the most uh, was not the most high quality VHS distributor to begin with. I don't think, and I think this movie's pretty low budget. Um, I'm not sure. I, I know that the only way they got big name actors to be in it, uh, and we'll go over who they are in a minute, was to pay them under the table, um, because otherwise there's no incentive to be in a, in low budget trash like this. We've asked this before for exploitation films like who are these made for and the question i had watching this film maybe about halfway through was who made this and why yeah let's revisit that question at the end but i will say that i think that this is a pure case of like grindhouse schlock drive-in fare they wanted a list of exploitive things to list on the poster and some big names that might attract like some credibility, I guess, some attention. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying this is a bad movie, but it, it, it's it's a desire to exploit, I feel like, is really naked. So let's talk about the cast. Our main character is played by Leslie Uggams, who was not primarily an actress. She was primarily a soul singer, um, and she had a long recording career. But uh, I looked on IMDb, and she's still acting. Did, you, did she come across as a good actress to you? I argue that she is not the main character. So, okay, so before we watched this film, right, previous episode, I asked, is this a black exploitation film? And you said no. Yeah. So, just so that we are on a level playing field, can you mansplain to us the difference between a black exploitation film and just any regular old exploitation film? Um, I, I don't think there's one definitive answer to that question, but I will say that black exploitation, whether it was coined by black people, the term, or they just adopted it they did adopt it even if you listen to people like melvin van peebles who directed sweet sweetback's badass song like usually credited as the first black exploitation movie he uses the term black exploitation and so to me it's not saying that black people are being exploited it's saying that it is an exploitation film that happens to be starring and made by black people um, there are some cases where the directors were not black, like uh, we talked about what's his name a few episodes ago when we covered his. Are you talking about when he made Abby, that director? No, I'm talking about the guy who directed um, Switchblade Sisters, Jack Hill. Jack Hill directed like Coffee and. Did he I direct he... Abby? Maybe. I, I don't remember. But anyway, my, my point is that, that Jack Hill is an example of a white director directing a black exploitation film, but the rest of the cast and crew are primarily black. Matt Simber is another one. He's the guy who directed The Witch Who Came From the Sea, um, but he directed like three or four black exploitation films as well. Um, so anyway, to answer your question, I don't think there's a substantive difference between them. They both are exploitation films, 
But if the majority of the cast and crew is black, I'd say it's black exploitation. I don't have enough experience with this genre to to quantify this definition, but I once heard black exploitation defined not necessarily by the content of the film, but of the nature of how the film was released. Because from what I understand back in the day, film producers believed that black cinema going audiences had no interest in watching films that starred primarily white actors. So there was a genre of film created by for, um, you know, black cinema goers. And that was specifically black exploitation because it was trying to, like, I guess in quotations, exploit that potential commercial niche. I mean, I, I think that that's true insofar as like ex the term exploitation applied to film in general it has always had this sort of ironic dual meaning, right? Is it exploitation because they're exploiting the audience to come see like trash? Is it exploitation because it's taking advantage of the actors is it exploitation because it's taking advantage of things like trauma and rape or is it exploitation for some totally different reason like people interpret the term differently but i think the only difference is you know with the black spin is that it's made primarily by them do you feel like this film was made primarily by black producers no i as as far as i know everyone involved in this is white yeah well i mean except the actress right on the one extra but we we can come back to that because i i am curious to talk about the film's racial undertones um that's like the entire film but the thing is when you say you know she's the main character i didn't get that at all I went into this film expecting her to be the main character because she's the first person we're introduced to. She's the primary victim of the story. However, um, Eddie gets the vast majority of screen time. I feel like it's more apt to treat this like one of the um, one of like the psychopath exhibitions, <laughs> character exhibitions that, that we have done on the show before. I do think about it that way, although I think they get about equal screen time. Um, I've I've always thought of her as our protagonist, but it's true that like we see just as much of Eddie and arguably learn um, more about him. He's, by the way, played by Michael Christian, who I am not otherwise familiar with. Uh, I think he was like mainly a television actor. But I think he does a pretty good job at what he's supposed to be doing here. Yeah, no, he fits the role pretty good. And the the other arguable main character is Bertha, who's played by Shelley Winters, the Shelley Winters. And I'm so happy we're finally doing a Shelley Winters movie because I love this woman. I just I love her acting. I love the character she tends to play. She endlessly fascinates and entertains me. I don't think this is one of her best performances. Like, it's not as good as in Cleopatra Jones playing Mommy, which I think is her best role um, or her best role in an exploitation movie. But I think she's good here. How did you like uh, Miss Shelley Winters? 
is it safe to assume that in Cleopatra she's like one of your like evil dommy mommy stereotypes? She's like a mob boss. And she sees uh, Cleopatra Jones, played by Pam Greer, is like uh, an undercover police officer trying to get revenge for, I think, her murdered brother. Um, and uh, and yeah, Shelley Winters is the one who's like pushing the drugs on the street and the prostitutes. But yeah, there's a climactic scene in that movie where she has some of the main characters trapped in a an erect car with a crane lifting them up and she's screaming and jumping around in the desert trying to convince the the crane driver to smash them it's it's just it's so absurd and over the top and i think that's like where she thrives as an actress which is what i think the best parts of this movie are are the uh the focus on the melodrama between her and eddie is it melodrama it feels like real drama because there is such a messed up dynamic going on at this bar because eddie is doubling as both a i guess like a bar hop and sort of like a gigolo right like yeah her personal her personal manservant yeah and and a singer and he's yeah and of course he's got the singing you know part yeah. of time yeah and, it's it's a troubling relationship and like yeah you know eddie's eddie's attractive but with the personality like that it, it really shows that he probably can't do better than than bertha like that situation that he's found himself in yeah but you can see as the movie progresses and his plans get more and more ludicrous that he's really not tethered to reality at all I think of him almost as like, imagine you had a delusional 10-year-old who's also violent, and then you, you put him in an adult man's body. That, that's what I, how I think of this character. Do you think any Elvis impersonator has a, a tether on reality? Uh, I'm sure there are some <laughs> who are just like, I happen to look like the guy, but... No, I, I think that there probably is some overlap between those two demographics. The, what else do I want to mention before we play the trailer? Um, I will say this was, this was written by a guy named David Worth. He did a lot of like cheap sci-fi movies uh, mainly, but this was one of his earlier screenplays um he also directed like he directs those shark attack movies for like sci-fi channel but the other writer is bw sandfler and i believe he did a lot of uh tv like barnaby jones and quincy and uh mike hammer and that kind of stuff so it's it's an odd pair to be writing what it I don't know. Would you describe this as like white trash, the rural poor? Like, what is the group of people we're dealing with in this film? Oh, the woods people. Yeah, okay. rural, <laughs> rural white trash woods people far away from the like <laughs> the influence of civ modern civilization. Yeah. That's in 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 Bertha's case, I think she's there to escape 
civilization and and more specifically the judgment of civilization um but yeah i don't know why any of the other ones are there i think it's just the case of they were born raised and just stayed there because there's nothing else for them yeah they're they're homegrown kind of like just what happens to a lot of generations that grow up in very rural areas so my point was just these these seem like odd people to have written uh this screenplay and the the uh, david worth was also the director and um like i said he he did a lot of cheap sci-fi type stuff this was apparently based on a play by i think it's pronounced uh jean guinet called the balcony i i don't know anything about that and i'm assuming that it's very very loosely based yeah, there are zero balconies in this film. Although you can kind of see how this is theatrical, right? We have like five characters. We have very limited number of sets. A lot of this movie are characters talking to each other. Although there's some very odd visual choices in this movie as well. All right, so let's play the trailer and then we're going to walk through most of this plot. Ladies and gentlemen. We are proud to present famous recording star, Miss Liz Weatherly, singing our national anthem. Oh, sir, can you see by the dawn's early light? I have two weeks before my next concert. Now I'm going to get in my car and drive until I find a nice, quiet hole to crawl into. <laughs> What do you want? I need some help. My car broke down. Good-looking woman like you shouldn't be out here traveling alone. Well, you, uh, you come to the right place, ma'am. We'll fix you right on up. You tell this idiot who I am. It's a genuine celebrity. She's a star. Why the hell did you leave this morning when I told you to? Because he's crazy. I want to press charges against Eddie Collins. Assault, kidnapping, and rape. Would you like to suck on tomato? They call it the old groany instead of the old coney. Cause the gals that come down here, they just groans and moans in ecstasy. Well, he did it again. <sighs> Doggies, I, I can't say it's a blaming. Did he bite you on pennies? What? Judge is gonna wanna know all this. Yes, peace, ain't it? I got just as much right to know as anybody else, either. That's a fine piece of evidence. It's them goddamn Yankees. They're just like hemorrhoids. <laughs> well, if they come down and go back, that's all right. But if they come down and stay down, they're pain in the ass. It was so hard not to laugh during that trailer, but at the same time, I think it actually illustrates how strange this movie is. It is very strange, um, <laughs> especially if you don't know what you're walking into. 
I had no idea. The first time I saw this movie, I I think it was it was on some streaming service, and my wife and I often just put on you know horror movies before falling asleep. And one night it was this. And ordinarily, I just fall asleep like in the middle of the movie, but this I was captivated by. What were your expectations? Were there any? So I'm about 15, 20 minutes in and I'm expecting basically deliverance. (laughs) Yeah. And to a degree, that's what you get. But there seems to be a lot of so I'm not sure if it's social commentary. Well, okay, it's social commentary, but I don't know if it's a critique or like an exhibition of this is just a slice of the American experience when you go way off the beaten path. That is a really good way to put it. It is that line is unclear uh, which side this movie wants to be on. Um, I'm not sure if it wants us to laugh at these people, if it wants us to sympathize with them or be scared of them. identify with them i really don't know but i kind of like that about it all i'm saying is there's probably people out there that sympathize with eddie or sympathize that chaos came to this little part of the georgian woods only because someone who didn't belong there showed up i mean Trump's election taught me both of those things about America. So I, uh, but they, they are, they are aptly showcased here. Um, but let's talk about the, the story. So we have Ugums who is, is playing a, a soul or jazz singer in the movie. And as you heard in the trailer, her car breaks down and she meets this housekeeper, this hulking, uh, deep-voiced, odd-looking, scarred housekeeper. Do you remember his name? Um, I don't think housekeeper's the right term. This man's a full-on lurch. Yeah, he basically is lurch. His name is Kino. And you might not notice this if you've watched the the low-def VHS rip, but if you watch this on HD, this man's face is scuffed. Do do you know why he reminds you of Lurch? Is it because he's actually Lurch? Yeah, both are played by Ted Cassidy. Wow. So, listeners, if you haven't seen this movie, just imagine Lurch. In color. (laughs) Anyway, so he tells her that he'll take her back to this... uh, Is it called a hotel in the movie? They're cabins. We kind of skipping over an important opening detail, which she is comes what cross lurch, chopping the head off a chicken in a shack, like he's prepping his own food. This this is like the opening statement or the opening um, detail that lets you know you are in the country because these people are processing their own meat. Yeah, it's it's maybe I'm just desensitized or uh, maybe I, I spent too long in the South or something. I don't know. But that scene didn't like I just kind of accepted it like, yep, that's normal. Like that's that's what would happen there. 
it it didn't uh it didn't seem out of place yeah no nothing nothing weird here just a human giant decapitating a bird <laughs> so he can rip its feathers off and eat it later yeah it totally it is this is it, a chicken that dies on camera so you know content warning for people who want to avoid animal cruelty on film if you are are worried about being exposed to animal cruelty avoid all of this film <laughs> because there there are there are several moments i want to comment on um this is in fact if you are anybody of any normal sensibilities <laughs> at risk of being offended by something avoid this film if you are a depraved like cynical and uh perverse damaged individual then join us in watching these movies yeah content warning animal cruelty sexual battery like uh, racial discrimination uh perversion of justice <laughs> <laughs> raw tomato eating <laughs> <laughs> so so Shelly Winters, her character, owns these cabins that she rents out. And her, like, the guy who greets Ugums at the front is Eddie. And Eddie is like an Elvis impersonator, country singer, general hotel manager. Is that fair? Is that a fair description? I feel like we're not like introduced to him as an Elvis impersonator. It's just sort of like thrown upon us when we didn't ask for it. I was, I, I just based on his outfits and the, especially the, the outfits that are highlighted later on, I was like, all right, this guy's like Elvis. Like he's trying to be Elvis. Oh, I mean, you called that shit then. He tells her that he'll rent her the only cabin with air conditioning and normally it's an extra two dollars but for her it's free and uh that's because he knows she's a celebrity and he's kind of like starstruck by her but also attracted to her and if it's not already apparent she is the only black person probably within a hundred mile radius so what what were you feeling about like the racial dynamics here well, there is a scene later where we see a black male extra, but he is definitely not integral to the plot. We never see him again. That was during the uh, dog breeding scene. <laughs> <laughs> Which I almost didn't say with a straight face. <laughs> but no, uh, first off, the real horror here, have you... Uh, Okay, so I've never lived in, in Georgia, per se, but I've lived in Florida, and, and without air conditioning, it is you are subjected to some uh, miserable, wretched jungle hell weather. So yep. I'm really glad that her, her celebrity stardom like paid off and got her some air conditioning. Let's just round of applause. I, you know, granted, it... This movie came out in 1975. It at times it feels even older. Um, I think partly because we're we're dealing with poor people, um, or you know, isolated people. Impoverished isolation is yeah more um, apt than poor. <laughs> and uh, 
And so I think at that time, it would not have been that common to have AC, especially like centralized AC in, in buildings, even in the South. Like, I think it's a relatively recent phenomenon that every building has centralized air. No, but I, I think it's natural for any American to watch a film like this and then see a lone black girl going into a very, again, isolated Southern Georgian. What do you want to call this? Like, it's almost like a like a like a reserve. This place is like a reserve where I, history time has stood like stays still or just crawls at a slower pace. And the the, the old ways are still here, Luke. Like they have <laughs> fucking Confederate flags on walls. They got them. They got the fucking license plates. <laughs> like that shit's still here. I mean, I've been to plenty of places in America. I, I've been in a lot of the the small towns and places like this, and that's often where you find the best VHS tapes or the best records. But uh, yeah, those people, it it's like going back in time. It really but is. It's, nat- it's it's completely natural to start like naturally questioning her safety, especially when you're watching a film that may or may not be exploitation. Yeah. And her, I mean, from the very beginning, everyone she interacts with, I think her like predominant emotion is annoyance, um, like annoyed or irritated with everybody. Do do you think that's warranted or do you think she's we're supposed to just think she's like a bitch or uh, what is she going for i didn't interpret it as annoyance i interpreted it as her putting up an emotional guard because she is very much on the defensive this entire film for good reason um not not that you needed to see why but she knows this is a terrible situation to be in like her Rolls Royce breaks down in the middle of the Georgian woods. And, and this is where, this is where she has to go for help where obviously there is a storied history of violence toward and discrimination towards the, like towards anyone black. The, the way I thought about it, because I did, I really did read it as annoyance, and I was thinking, all right, we've got this, on the one hand, black woman who knows these people don't want her there, who knows that there is prejudice against anyone who looks like her, but at the same time, she's much wealthier than they are and much, uh, you know, famous as opposed to, to them. And so there's a strange, I think, push and pull between an arrogance, a thought that like, I'm annoyed that I have to deal with these people who are low class at all, and a sort of fear, resentment, anger over the perception of racism. I can see it. I don't think that Leslie Uggams is a good enough actress to pull all of that off, but I think that you can read it into the situation. Like, I can imagine all of that going on. I don't know if I would, uh, 
I don't know if I would throw her her performance under the bus for this because for the multiple versions of this film that exists, as we found out before we started recording, um, this version in particular, Poor Pretty Eddie, is has like character background dialogue missing. So she might have been much more fleshed out in this film than we are led to believe. Yeah, that's true. Really, our only introduction to her is footage of her singing the national anthem, which was real footage of Leslie Uggams from a football game. Like, it wasn't made for the movie. Um, But that's all the introduction we get. But that's my problem with her character, is that I don't feel like she gets enough screen time to really humanize her outside of her just her natural position as a victim in this film. Like it's hard to to build her more as a person than just someone who gets victimized the entire time. That's a good observation. I think that's true, and and I I don't think her performance is great. I think it's really flat, and as a result, I don't end up sympathizing with her that much. I mean, I think that every, that things that happen to her in this movie are terrible, uh, traumatic, awful things. But I have trouble taking her that seriously. Granted, that's kind of true of all the performances in this movie. Like, it's hard to take them seriously because they're they're so histrionic and so over the top. It doesn't feel like it's unwarranted, though. Like, I, I imagine the kind of personality who would do these sorts of things to someone as as like eddie right like you're not gonna act like a normal person you're not gonna have a normal emotional range my critique isn't so much that the performances are unrealistic as that if this is an extreme of situations right these are extreme people thrown into an extreme um meeting in an extreme location and so you're going to get like histrionics uh, but that doesn't mean that it feels it still feels silly right it's the same way watching like schindler's list like yeah oscar schindler was an incredible human being and that movie is profoundly moving but at the same time it's melodramatic and like sappy and uh overly emotive you know, it's still cheesy. So that's kind of how I feel about this. There, There is an issue I have with her performance, and I'm not sure if it's her or the writing, but there are scenes where she just had something absolutely traumatic happen to her, and her reaction in the scene that follows is more like the attitude you would have if you were upset to customer service rather than someone who was actually, I mean, again, everyone reacts to stress and and trauma differently, but it did, something seemed like it was missing here. Yeah, I, I noticed that and I thought about it, but at the same time, I think that she probably wanted to portray like toughness like like a steely resolve and a survival mechanism to like get herself out of the situation and there are actresses that can pull that off like i think pam greer in similar movies pulls that off amazingly she might be the best actress of all time at doing this but leslie ogham's just i don't think she can do it 
I, I don't think she's emotive enough or expressive enough to convince us that that's what's going on. At least with the scenes that were presented. Yeah. So these cabins are owned by Shelley Winter's character, and she's like an eight. She she used to be a Hollywood star, but this is like way past her glory days, and now she's overweight and she's poor and she doesn't have a career any longer. And so there's all that like Sunset Boulevard, uh, fading Hollywood icon sort of uh, context here. Um, but I've already praised her performance. What do, what do you think of this character and her her performance? Very believable. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't have a problem taking any of these characters seriously for the most part. I mean, you can say that some of the later characters that are introduced are more of um, Southern caricatures. And but what she is feels like grounded to me i i totally believe it but was she actually a star or was she just in a position of like social influence before that she mentions very casually in a line that she could like go join a brothel or something like that i kind of got the impression that maybe she was some kind of sex worker or burlesque worker in the past but perhaps i missed something i should mention that the version on youtube may be missing a couple of scenes the the impression i've always got is that she she was like a somewhat popular actress and she was in one or two big movies but then as she started to age like there was just no roles for her and so she was kind of like a minor celebrity and nobody's interested in an aging minor celebrity do you ever feel like these kinds of roles are um like self-deprecating when you have like an actor and an actress portraying a washed up actor or actress do you think they like really know what they're doing and like don't take any like emotional damage from it i think shelly winters knows what she's doing because she plays this role so many times in so many different movies um with just slight variations but it's always some twist on i know i'm older and i know i'm overweight and i'm not the best looking uh but i am the most powerful person in the room and i am the most important person in the room and like everyone has to cater to me and very dramatic right that's that's like her archetype i wonder if she was like that in real life i i'm really curious because she's such a convincing actress to me that i I haven't like watched a lot of interviews with her or anything, so maybe I should just do research. Anyway, we've totally not been on track with the story. But basically, Ukums is staying here, and the rep what is his name? Lurch. Let's just call him Lurch. Um, Kino. <laughs> Kino is supposed Lurch. It's fine. Kino's supposed to be working on her car, but Eddie tells him not to because Eddie wants her to be trapped there because his plan is to sleep with her. Bertha is not happy uh, that she is there. I, do you think that do you think that it's just jealousy or do you think it's also that Ugums is black? both it's both i mean yeah. we make it 10 minutes into this film before her character starts throwing out racial epithets it, she wants her gone it, she is pretty blatant that her entire life purpose is wrapped up in having eddie 
If she doesn't have Eddie for like external validation, she doesn't think she'll ever meet anyone else who's as, I guess, good looking as he is. And that this is her last chance of like a, a fulfilled life. Is that your read on the character? Absolutely. And it, it, as I said, as Shelley Winters is just really good at playing these characters. Um, but there's a weird scene. Oh, there are so many weird scenes. Yeah. Um, but there is a, this weird scene is Eddie is arguing with Kino about whether or not to fix the car quickly. And the Kino does this weird slow motion karate chop into Eddie's neck while Ugams is taking photos of them. It's a very, did this scene strike you as strange? Sort of, but I mean, compared to some of the other stuff in this film, this is, that is pretty tame. I think it was just Kino just showing Eddie, you know, hey, I can fuck you up. So please stop, you know, fucking around with me. Because before this, Kino has his head under the hood of the car trying to see what's going on. And Eddie bops the fucking horn. Yeah, to mess with him. Yeah. Eddie is very immature. The This is the first thing I noticed in the movie as being just odd, like off kilter, strange, um, particularly the use of slow motion, which is going to become quite normalized by the end of the movie. But here it's just this is the moment where I thought this is not a normal movie. And so Eddie knows exactly how to manipulate Bertha, basically whenever she's upset about something he just starts to praise her appearance and like flatter her and then start flirting with her and making her feel like sexually desired and then she pretty much does whatever he wants so like do you think he has a good gig here like is he is he succeeding in life by taking advantage of this situation it definitely feels like this is not a forever plan but he can coast by for a while I mean, hey, worst case scenario, right? He rides out with Bertha until she passes away. He inherits the bar. Yeah, he's basically the male equivalent of a gold digger stereotype. and But a little more manic and odd. But he dresses like Elvis. He wants to be a country singer. He performs a song at one point. What did you think of his song, by the way? Terrible. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> Well, I'm pretty sure that was the point. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad, but everyone in the room seems to be really impressed by it, except for Ugams, who is clearly like, afterwards, I think she says, well, it's not my thing. I, I would say if you want to talk about Ugams's like irritation and annoyance, this is the scene where it shined through. And it's worsened because they have company this night. The sheriff, who's played by Slim Pickens, I don't know how they got Slim Pickens in this movie, or but they're like this is Slim Pickens, right? So with the the Slim Pickens stereotype, that's the character in this movie, which means he's casually like misogynistic and racist. I think those are like the qualifications to become sheriff in a part of the <laughs> part of the country like this. Probably. Like, the first time he meets Ugams, he, he talks about how surprised he is that, that one of her people came to this part of the country. 
And he he compares Bertha to a bale of hay. Do you remember this? Keep going. There's a weird line where he's talking to Bertha, like praising her, and he compares her to a bale of hay. Well, he is definitely way into Bertha, and he would not be disappointed to see Eddie drop dead on the spot. Yeah, I I don't know how to describe the dynamic here, um, but it's clearly inappropriate. I don't know that Slim Pickens is malicious exactly. No, I and later he most certainly is. <laughs> he most certainly is. Yeah, um, he is a product of his environment and has made no effort to um, change that course of fate. But he has like an assistant or a, a deputy that goes around with him. That's who, his son. Oh, that's <laughs> that's a full blown adult playing a child. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's supposed to be like a stereotypical r- retarded person, uh, as oh, they would have said. Oh, I didn't consider then. that. I thought it was like yeah. an adult playing a child. Maybe it is someone who's mentally challenged. I think they say something about him being deficient or something at some point. Of course, it's said in an offensive way, but uh, no, I th- I think that's the implication. But it's just odd to me that this person is, whether he is or isn't, he's treated like the deputy, essentially. You know, now that I'm looking at this in HD, you know, I'm seeing Eddie up on stage with his guitar and he has like fucking rhinestones on the like curve of the guitar with his name. Yep. <laughs> oh, you can't see that in the, the YouTube version. Oh, no. No. This is a totally a real bar that it was filmed in. This has to be a real place somewhere. Oh, I'm sure. Um, this movie, I think, besides the the high like star quality of the actors, is very low budget, and I think this is a, like a real location. I would say great set design, but is it really set design when you just show up and it already looks perfect? I think it just this is how it looks. I don't think they designed this. After this performance of Eddie's. The two of them are out by his car talking. And this was the only point in the movie where I was like, does she actually like him? Do you think there is a moment where she's like charmed by him or interested in him? Not at all. This movie, I would say all the men in this movie ooze from every orifice of their body. Toxic masculinity. Just they're coated in it like a fine sheen of grease but i don't think the movie is on their side no not at all i hope not it's it's it's, It's not certain it's yeah it's hard to tell but i don't think so i think that we're meant to see them as villains the problem is that the villains in quotes are focused on the entire film whereas the victim basically gets like two or three scenes to shine and the entire entire like hour 20 minute runtime it, but that again that's just adds to the bizarre nature of this entire this entire film yeah so there th- that night Ugums comes down from taking a shower i think and, and is going to get into bed and eddie is there like naked under her covers and they have kind of a physical altercation 
and she she kicks him in the balls in slow motion and i think he like knees her in the stomach and slaps her across the face but it's incredibly violent it's far more violent than i you would see in most any other film well she very explicitly tells him to leave that she is not interested and that in fact she would forget this entire incident even occurred if he just left and it wasn't until he got out of bed and approached her that she got defensive understandably and this is a at the start this is an incredibly disturbing rape scene um she's beating at him and clawing at him with her fingernails and like it looks like really scratching him up and um clearly is not consenting so did you find this tough to watch yeah i mean it it could have been like i i mean it sounds fucking shallow to say this it could have been worse but it definitely is not a comfortable scene to watch but i think what makes it well, what really takes it to the next level of um, awkwardness is that <laughs> it's the idea that I got here is that he knocked her unconscious and then he spent the night with her and the assault did not occur until the morning when she woke up or at the same exact time outside you have other people that are both employees and people that live around the area getting together to breed their dogs. And it is so strange because they have this little corral outside and this guy just picks his dog up like a, like a hog and just tosses it in like hurls, just hurls this dog in. (laughs) Doesn't even give a shit if it lands on its feet. You see the dog like in slow motion flipping through the air. (laughs) Yeah. Like over the camera. (laughs) So, so the, the and then while the dogs are fucking on camera, you have this <laughs> rape scene going on at the same time. And Do you don't... think there is some greater message here <laughs> about like the forced sexualization of animal breeding and <laughs> what is going on here? I mean, in accordance with the law, animals can't consent. <laughs> I don't think I've ever laughed this hard recording an episode, but this scene is so bizarre. And what the weirdest part we haven't even mentioned yet is that the the there's a song that plays over. Oh it. God, the fucking music! <laughs> we haven't even talked about the music. <laughs> this is a this is a very <laughs> this is a really really strange like country song. <laughs> Can we play some of it? I know you want to watch this scene again. Oh, yeah, of course. Don't let them dogs get together, man. You won't have to say you love me in the morning. By the time you wake up, I'll be gone. So come and touch my hand. Down low and make believe you love me all night long. I'm no fairy princess, the never, never man. 
Wow, it go keeps going. Yeah, it's it's. Long. I thought it was like it's almost over. I'll just let it play out. No, oh. it goes on for a long time. I I don't know if I just didn't notice this the first time, but when I don't even know if we're gonna play it in that clip. But when the scene starts, when she wakes up in the morning, the scene has it the low sound of a dog growl playing over the beginning. I. I noticed that it's very interesting. This is before they even show dogs. And this is this is something we should talk about now. There are a lot of very strange, like dreamlike directorial decisions that really elevate this film and what would otherwise be, I guess, like totally pedestrian scenes you would see in an exploitation film. This in particular, this dog growl. And later on, there's a scene where um, Ugum's washes her face in the bathroom and then looks up into the mirror, but it's Eddie's fucking face. Like, it's his actor in her wig. And then it just slowly, like, transitions into actually being her. Yeah, the the first half of this scene, the, the rape, hallucination, dog fucking scene... It, the first half is horrific and eerie and borderline surreal. And it reminds me very much of a lot of David Lynch's stuff. Like this is Mulholland Drive level, you know, creepy mood dream logic. But then that song comes on and totally ruins that and makes this a laughable scene to me. Whereas, it, so it goes from like the utmost of unnerving horror to ridiculous. I don't know if this if this is gonna make me sound like contrite, but I kind of I kind of dig it when you have like happy music over like shitty things, or likely a happy song that when you actually listen to the words is actually pretty sad and depressing. I think it it depends on the tone of the movie, right? Like if if I'm being if I'm being shown something ironically, like sure. Um, if you're making a satirical point, sure. But in this movie, I I think it would have been more effective if it leaned into the the mood piece of really establishing like an uncomfortable, unnerving tone, because I think that they're clearly going for that at points yeah i mean they're playing what i would say is like a old country traditional romance song over something that is very much not that there's there is um like a messed up dichotomy here and i get i don't know if they're trying to say something here i don't i don't know what the message is i assume there was one or they were just trying to be shocking I could imagine either of those, but I mean, the song features a woman talking about like her sexual promiscuity in a way that would be, I guess, more socially acceptable than what we're fucking watching right now. Um, I don't know how that really relates here, though. I mean, but... she does get say the say the line about like, you know, paying the piper. Like maybe she's doing it as an obligation perhaps indicating that maybe this woman here should be doing this as an obligation to Eddie, who's been showing her nothing but affection. All right. Now we're, now we're in like 
AP literature territory, you know, doing some literary analysis here. I lost my train of thought. I'm trying to make sense of this, all right? Maybe that's the problem. Like, right? No, nothing makes sense. Life has no meaning. Why am I trying? Altogether. Oh, oh, this is the only other time we see a black actor in the film. Yeah. In the crowd. I don't know. That has absolutely no bearing on the plot of the film, but there it is. I have no idea what bearing any of it has, but altogether, this is one of the weirdest fucking scenes I've ever seen in a movie. It's, it, it, I think it's because it, uh, on the one hand, it's actually trying to be weird. It's trying to be surrealistic. It's trying to be like David Lynch, but it's so incompetently or I guess just strangely done. It's like, it's bonkers on multiple dimensions. Am I crazy for thinking this scene works? I did not question like this being, um, I guess the execution being absurd. I thought it was fine. I mean, as soon as the, there's like a correlation between the guy heaving the dog over the fence and him repositioning her on the bed to continue the assault. Like there's just, I mean, you're right. Like this is some AP lit, like basic ass, like, um, you know metaphor creation here but i don't know i like i think this is this is a good scene overall no i if it is. i agree i i i would argue that the scene kind of makes the movie honestly like it's the reason to see this movie if you if for no other reason but i do think that the impact of the scene is undercut by the song it, before that song comes on I think that the sound design for this scene is masterful. It's the same kind of ambient music, concrete noise generation that David Lynch does just to unnerve you. And then all of that like power and emotion and uh, uh, uneasiness the film has built is all just swept away by folk song. So think about it this way. What would be better, folk song or like Eddie grunting with, you know, gasping and pleas for help interlaced with like dogs fucking and people cheering on dogs fucking? I would have just kept that that same sound design that they had been doing. The sort of unnerving, jangly uh, found sound. But I, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of using um, non-musical sounds in a musical context. All right, so there's a transition scene here before we get to another really strange scene where Ugums tells Bertha that Eddie raped her. And Bertha has this really wonderful speech. He's all that I got. And after him, there ain't going to be no more. And you would best remember that. Because if push comes to shove, honey, I'll stand up in any courtroom and I'll say how innocent poor little Eddie is. Are you thinking of all the troubles you're going to make, Freddie? You could best remember how all our four stories are going to look in those uh, big northern newspapers. Come on, Miss Weatherly. I was an entertainer. I know what bad publicity is. What kind of woman are you? Well, the kind of respect she's had it. You don't think so now, honey. The time will come. You will understand exactly what some 
Somebody like poor little pretty Eddie. Well, mean to you. Like, and you don't look so good no more. And you reach over in the night for someone, anyone who's young and alive and warm and sweet smelling. And then you'll fight God and seven different kinds of alligators to keep him there. You would stand up in court and perjure yourself for that filthy, rotten little... You know, you still don't understand. That in half of what I do, I have to. I am a fan of this style of acting. Like, it's kind of out of fashion now, but the the Shelley Winter school of acting that's not afraid of being melodramatic, that's not afraid of going too big, but is incredibly articulate and timed and practiced. I, I just think she's amazingly effective. It it sounds theatrical. Right. Which makes sense if this was based on a play. And I think Shelley Winters did a lot of theatrical work as well. It did that line is also interesting because it makes the racism explicit again. And it I guess drives home like the social isolation that Ogums is in. When I rewatch this scene, I think about how like comparatively muted her responses, Ugum's responses to what, you know, what a normal person might be going through. And it just occurred to me that maybe she has to hold back because if she goes all out, she is not in home territory. She is very much in a world, in a, in a society right now that would not be on her side if she were to show any sort of violence or overreact well i wouldn't say overreaction comparable reaction like uh, an appropriate escalation of her emotions to what's going through her what's happening to her right now and if she were to perhaps exercise that behavior things would only get worse for her yeah no i think that's entirely true um and i think that I don't know if it was written into the screenplay or if that's just Shelley Winters and Ugum's like adopting characteristics for their roles. Um, but the dynamic just makes so much sense to me. Like it's so intuitive that this is how they would be. And it reminds me of like, there's a lot of research to support the idea that especially black women have to be very careful not to be too aggressive or too loud or too like they have to be overly feminine in order to not be perceived as angry or violent and i see her doing the same thing restraining herself to not fit into whatever feared feared stereotype uh these southerners have yeah, that really puts her performance in a whole new light, assuming it's intended. I it, It's hard because I haven't seen her in, I don't think, anything else. But I, I know it's uh, her performance was and has been critiqued. Um, but this is this is followed by another weird scene where there's there's a voiceover narration. Yeah, she starts to think to herself, what the what the fuck do I do from here? 
Yeah, but they're they're walking. Her and Eddie are in front of like this Hydra Dam. I don't. At first, I was like, "Why are they here?" But then it seems like she's taking pictures of him because it showed us earlier that she was into photography, and they're like glamour shots with his guitar for his album cover. And, and but over top of it, yeah, there's this very serious almost poetic though like lyrical voiceover narration from Ugum's talking about her fear of like how to get out of this situation did you think this was an effective scene or was it just strange no but i otherwise don't know how you would really portray these thoughts right now because she has no one else to talk to so what's the alternative? You know, she sits in front of a mirror and starts asking herself shit. If they had wanted to do this, then they should have done it throughout the film. Like if you think back to Messiah of Evil, some people hate the voiceover in that one, but I actually like it. I think it's really well done, but it's done. It's woven in and out of the movie and it actually creates sort of a lyrical, like dreamlike feel. They could have done that in this movie as well. But instead, they only use it in this scene. I agree that it wouldn't have been as out of place if they used it more than once. But this is like the closest we ever get to her being by herself. Yeah, that's true. The The movie definitely runs the risks of like isolating her. There, there are maybe two, maybe three scenes in this whole film where her character actually gets to do something. And that's this scene the scene with the sheriff and then the scene in the bar or the um the mock trial well there is a scene immediately after this where a guy is giving ugum's a ride and he forces her to give him a blowjob while he's driving and can we uh, what is ugum's character's name <laughs> we've been calling her actress's name the whole time i think it's liz liz that's right okay that that is right yep that's right because i remember she said elizabeth and like oh like the queen yeah uh, okay. yes <laughs> all right so bertha tells liz that she needs to get the fuck out because she's tired of liz uh home wrecking her perfect relationship <laughs> so liz sees an quote unquote opportunity when a customer comes by with a car and she tries to convince him to give him a ride back to Atlanta where you know it's civilization she'll be safe ish or at least can get help but he takes advantage of the situation by like coercing her into a sexual favor before he would actually take off so he drives him down to the uh country equivalent of make out point by a pond and while it's going on eddie shows up and eddie is not happy because he sees this as liz being unfaithful and what happens is a very disjointed pot like i'm assuming this actually happened but who knows it it actually it feels like a dream in the movie it doesn't it didn't feel to me like this was actually happening but i don't know if it was supposed to be or not because before this eddie takes her out for a drive where they you know go to a hydroelectric dam and take promo shots of him and his musician get up 
and she imagines shooting him with a gun um while taking pictures and that obviously didn't happen but you know he is totally splayed out dead in front of this like picturesque waterfall it, it yeah. makes us question like if which which of these things are actually going on yeah because like we see scenes of eddie whipping her like in in a master slave style which is really uncomfortable but i don't think that's literally happening he literally comes up like he's been in the back seat of the car the whole time yeah and i don't know if that's what actually happens or not yeah this is i mean this is what this is what makes this movie interesting to some degree uh, these sorts of scenes where it's it's unclear whether you're watching dreams or reality which like all right, we see that done explicitly in things like Nightmare on Elm Street, but how many times do you see that sort of dream logic applied to rural, southern, old-timey white people? It's just not usually together, right? Yeah. So, so it seems very odd. Eventually... We can jump ahead to when Liz approaches law enforcement. That's what I was trying to figure out where where to jump ahead to. There's a convoluted setup where Ugums ends up being pulled over and arrested, and she's brought into the police station to talk to Slim Pickens. And she tells him that she wants to charge Eddie with assault and rape. And he has a very, would you describe it as nonchalant or defensive? I certainly think that he has a huge reluctance to press charges, which is kind of strange because you'd think he'd want to get Eddie out of the way so that he can get closer to Bertha. But I guess, uh, you know, the whole white pride stick together thing is more important. I also think he has the sense that like if something happened to Eddie, that that would kind of martyr him or or at least endear him to bertha and, and that that would not make bertha receptive to his advances we should mention there is a big confederate flag hanging on the corner of this police the, this police office yep and slim pickens response is to hold out a tomato and ask if she would like to suck on it and then him and his son just start eating tomatoes right out of the bowl and then they each have their own salt shakers to salt their tomatoes. And shortly after he's asked her this, if she wants to, to suck on one, um, he starts asking these detailed questions about the rape. And he says that the judge is going to want to know this stuff. And eventually he's, he wants, he asks, uh, did Eddie, did he bite on your titties? And she, she's very taken aback and like offended. Um, I mean, justly so, I guess. But this whole scene, I can't imagine this was not supposed to be comical. I don't think this is comical. I think this is uh, absolutely horrifying, especially if you're a woman that has survived a sexual assault and you're trying to report it to law enforcement. Like, obviously, this is kind of like an over-exaggeration of what would happen um, in some cases, but not to say that this hasn't happened 
And you know, he's not taking this seriously because his notes on his clipboard is basically just him drawing art of, uh, <laughs> I'm assuming a woman getting raped and it's done in such a crude style. It looks like it was done by like a eight, eight year old or something. Well, and it, it even has rape sprawled across the middle of it. Oh, it's that obvious, huh? It is. Wow. Um, but yeah i don't i don't mean to suggest that i don't find the content here really disturbing and i i actually i think the performances are really disturbing as well i just think the trappings of the movie are so weird and the choices are so bizarre and and sometimes i think over the top that it makes it hard for me to take any of it seriously and at points it makes it feel like they're trying to make me laugh even if that is more likely to offend me Right. Like, I think that's part of why the movie is offensive, because it's taking lightly these really horrifying circumstances. But I I think taking it lightly is is the right framing here, because you're you're already in a mindset like her mindset, which is you are something terrible has happened to you and nobody is taking you seriously no nobody is recognizing that some great atrocity just occurred or maybe atrocity is a strong word um horrific incident just occurred and then you have this guy who's just so nonchalant about what's going on he's eating tomatoes tomatoes which is a very country thing actually just like snacking on tomatoes I'm from the South and I didn't know that. Um, I haven't encountered that, but I'm not from the normal South. No, Florida is a Northern state in the South. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. Until you can't handle, <laughs> then, then it's very South. Um, it's, it's solidly red now. So I, it can, the South can have it. The sheriff gets a wonderful idea here, which oh, is, uh, oh, hang on. So what I was going to say is, I agree with with everything that you're saying. Like, I agree that all of this is horrific. Um, But I think that when you cast Slim Pickens in your movie in 1975, you're doing it ironically. The same way Kubrick did in Dr. Strangelove, like using him ironically. I because by 1975 no one took him or that caricature seriously. It was seen as, you know, exaggerated offensive absurd perhaps in the wrong context and so even though like if you put a different actor in there who was playing this i think entirely straight and wasn't saying uh did he bite on your titties like in a really informal way like that which i think it on the one hand it's horrifying but on the other it it dampens the blow of the scene like they're doing all these things to undermine the seriousness of it from my perspective okay so consider this um i do not have any preconceptions of slim pickens in other roles um i'm sure i've seen him in other things but he doesn't stand out to me as someone that I like actively remember in things I have seen. And so I don't have that like history of other roles to influence how I'm looking at him. I really see him as just like this country bumpkin sheriff who frankly just 
man, it really seems like he doesn't care. But then he takes the time to set up the next scene in the bar. So I'm not quite certain how much of this is maliciousness and how much of this is incompetence. There is a huge, uh, there is, there's kind of like a fog of war there. There, there is, and I actually don't think his performance is bad. Um, I, I do think they're trying to use him ironically, but I think his performance is actually sincerely good insofar as he really walks a blurry line between, yeah, being malicious and being like sort of politically correct, like faux nice. Um, but then, yeah, he comes across as incompetent or lazy. It's it's a pretty complex character, which you don't expect walking into a film like this. No, it's what makes this film um, worthy of discussion. But the next scene, I I did find profoundly disturbing. Um, I didn't like. I don't know about you. I did not know where this was going. Like, I did not expect this to happen at all. But it seems so natural in retrospect. Yeah, they basically tell her well let's just have the trial right now and they go over to this like beer hall type of party where the judge is drinking and they just tell him we're going to hold court right here and we're going to subject you to a physical inspection to see if you have bruises or bite marks anywhere oh and eddie's here by the way you're right yeah i yeah there see i don't i don't sense any irony or like cutting edge here this this is just horrific um and ugums is playing it entirely straight and this is one of several parts where we see her in slow motion like screaming dramatically and in this case there is this very strange like tongue harp music i don't know what those instruments are actually called but um the tongue harp music that's playing it's it's another very surreal and disturbing scene once the judge rips her top off to examine for evidence quotations evidence it's extremely obvious that everybody or all the males in the bar are ogling her completely and eddie becomes absolutely furious that his woman is being exposed to the public and he slams the judge in the back of the head with a pull cue which starts a brawl (laughs) and immediately ends the trial with no verdict yeah the there is this very clear subtext here and maybe it's not sub at all but that the white southern men are attracted to ugums but they also hold racist views towards her and potentially resent her and like her success and it's very very clear that the movie wants us to see all those things which i think is really interesting and elevates this movie in a lot of ways but the next scene it just tries to one-up it in its disturbing offensiveness talking about the dog scene the other dog scene (laughs) yeah um 
basically Eddie invites them all to breakfast the next morning. Uh, everybody in the household, Lurch and Ogums <laughs> and um, who else is there? The And Shelly Winters. And uh, invites them all to breakfast because he cooked for all of them. And he's encouraging them to eat and saying, like, I just want to apologize. I did this to make it up to you. Uh, please eat, eat, eat. Made and, a rabbit stew. And he hunted earlier in the movie, so it's been established that, you know, he can provide. Uh, but then Ugums pulls a dog collar from the stew. And I guess Lurch was particularly close to the dog. Yeah, that was his dog. And this was revenge because Eddie had threatened Lurch a few days before that he was going to get revenge for what? What is he? What is it that Lurch did? I don't know if Kino has feelings for Bertha, but he is very loyal and he does not want to see Bertha in any sort of misery or pain or suffering. Yeah, I thought he had feelings for her. It's entirely possible, but what's important here is that uh, now Kino is seen as a threat to keeping Liz around. So Eddie here with his, um, you know, psychopathy decides it's a great idea to kill, cook, skin his dog and turn it into a stew. While Kino is distracted, uh, Eddie hits him in the head with some sort of blunt object, just goes the to town on him and while Kino is recovering from his injuries on the ground <laughs> he takes the skin of the dog perfectly tanned and everything and drapes it across the table over the stew and while he's doing it we get a split screen shot of that scene that ridiculous scene where the dog was lobbed into the pen breeding <laughs> pen <laughs> And this, it's so it's so beautiful. <laughs> this is another scene grotesquely beautiful. Yeah, this this was another scene that that I found really troubling. Um on the one hand, it's it's truly disturbing, and on the other hand, it's it seems so absurd and silly in its concept that I find it like, I find uh, it comical. Why would you leave the collar in the stew? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of what kind of <laughs> of flavor do you think that collar is going to put in the stew? Well, Eddie seems to be primarily about theatrics. Like he wants to put on a show. That's why he has the tanned skin ready to hurl across the table. So I think the collar and the stew was like his his statement, his gotcha moment. But Eddie is at do you think at this point Eddie is just going increasingly mad? I mean, he's never been stable, but he is definitely getting pushed over the deep end. There is this truly painful scene where he goes to Bertha and says that he's dug out her old wedding dress that her grandmother or mother made and that he wants to have a wedding. And she is overjoyed because she thinks that he wants to marry her. And she's like, oh, I'm going to have to slim down to fit in this dress, but like, we'll make it work. And he's basically like, no, you idiot. I have. Why would I want to marry you? <laughs> and totally rejects her. And this is 
devastating for her and i think uh i think really effective a really effective scene she's not even a good person and you still feel sorry for her right i mean in some point it, it, to some degree i agree that she's not a good person but i think that most of her faults are sort of cascading faults that that started out kind of innocently or naively or just stupidly right but they cascade in importance and complication and impact and uh she ends up doing really bad things i think this is like some sort of analogy like a throwback to like the antebellum south where you would have you know the white husband landowner with the black slave mistress and then the white wife would just not really think much of it because they don't consider the mistress like human like on the same level so she like never really considered liz to be in a position to steal full attention she really just thought that Liz was just like a side distraction. She was completely blindsided by this wedding dress request. I will also say, and I, I don't know how fair this is, our cultural context and like the power of our symbols is such that if you put a black woman in the middle of an all-white Southern cast, no matter what the events of the movie are, there's already a racial significance and undertone, and it's a it's a force to be reckoned with in the in the movie, right? So then you just build on top of that. So even if this movie does not intend to say anything about the racial dynamics here, and like a white man forcing a black woman to marry him they are there like you can't escape them i don't think i feel like we've waxed really philosophically this episode it's hard not to there's so much here so do you think that it's intentionally here that the film is trying to be like weighty and transcendent or do you think that it's just accidental well transcendent probably not <laughs> um but this is definitely like an onion of a film with a lot of different layers. And who knows, maybe this is like a Joe D'Amato situation where some guy was like, man, I just want to make like some trashy ass film with, with like racial connotations in like Southern Georgia. And then this accidentally happened. Or maybe this particular edit of all the ver versions of this film just happens to to slap like this and if we were to watch the other ones it wouldn't you know it wouldn't be the same at all well i think ugums is realistically traumatized during this entire wedding scene where yeah. she's basically like stumbling along like a zombie being unresponsive to any questions so this scene is basically chaos right Bertha shows up in her own wedding dress. Eddie comes to the party decked out in a yellow Elvis costume. And there is a fight between Lurch and Eddie with Lurch using his imposing height and strength to strangle Eddie while Eddie manages to grab a knife and stab him in the back. 
And there's a slow motion shootout between Lurch and the sheriff with Ugum's doing a slow motion scream in the background. What did you think of this scene overall? To be fair, after the kangaroo court, I had no clue what was going to happen. We got this wedding that's being officiated by the judge. The one that just stripped her down in the bar not even a day prior. And is acting like she's his best friend. Like that's just normal behavior here. Eddie is absolutely convinced that this is love. That she is his now because they are joined through the act of... Well, the, the through the act of the first dog scene, he tells her that if he that she needs to marry him so that she won't be, I think he says, won't be illegitimate anymore or won't be impure anymore, something like that, like making the clear implication that she is like a ruined woman if she doesn't marry him. That is such a southern fucking out mindset. Yep, like. I raped you, and uh, so now I own you, right? I have claim to you. My takeaway from this whole scene was that there is no place in this culture or in this world for Ugums, for a black woman, except as property. Like, that's really the only available role for her in this society. And so when you like it doesn't matter that she's successful it doesn't matter that she's probably relatively wealthy that she's probably very educated none of that matters because she is stuck in a context that only views her as property before they even start the ceremony lurch comes lurch tries to strangle eddie to death and it doesn't work because Eddie stabs him like in the back room and you assume that he's dead. You assume that he, he has been stabbed to death and then Eddie just calmly goes out to get married. That is when Bertha comes in wearing the old, well, is she wearing her old dress? Because I'm assuming Liz is wearing the dress, right? Yeah. I think Liz is wearing the dress and I think Bertha is wearing a completely different dress that fits her. So she didn't have to slim down. You go girl. Yeah. Yep body positivity while liz is ranting about the illegitimacy of this wedding there is like a, a rapid transition of shots between her and the random taxidermy around the the bar i don't know if, the, if they're really trying to say anything with this shot much like with a lot of the bizarre things in this movie but these are very like un clean like taxidermy shots like you would actually see them on the bar they did not pretty these up at all no. there's like a dead spider in like the eyelashes of one of the deers i noticed that yeah it's like yeah. A real dusty and everything yeah like it's strange this whole movie has a griminess to it i i like this is to the south what headless eyes is to New York. Like it's that <laughs> it's that is that local sleaze. That is that local sleaze. Yeah. Before Bertha can finish her like absolute insanity rant, Lurch comes through the side door with a shotgun still alive. 
and blasts Eddie in the chest. The sheriff then responds by pulling his revolver and in the chaos accidentally shoots the judge first before finally putting a round into, into, into Lurch. This is the kind of um, chaos that actually happens in active shooter situations that you don't really see in films, especially in the, the mid-70s. I kind of always appreciate this sort of... Um, this sort of like absolute bedlam that can happen in, in like portrayed mass violence scenarios in films. Cause I feel like it's really glossed over, especially in modern in modern film. No, I agree. This is part of the reason why I don't think the solution to gun violence is to arm everybody. Because I think you'd end up with a lot of scenes like this, where there's just crossfire and random people are dying and it's it doesn't lead to anything good. I mean, it was only a year or two ago that someone with a concealed carry stopped a mass shooter in public only to be killed by the police when they showed up on scene because they thought he was the shooter. Yep. Liz then picks up the shotgun that Lurch dropped, aims it at Eddie, finishes him off, and then we're treated to the closing scene of her pointing it at the camera and pulling the trigger. So what do you think the implication there is? Because I took it as she was shooting into a mirror and I didn't know if it was supposed to imply that she was killing herself or that symbolically she was killing herself or that she was killing the viewer. Like, how did you interpret it? Ooh, I didn't consider that last one. I mean, you also gotta consider I don't know what was going on through Lurch's mind or Tino's mind, but he, not only did he shoot Eddie, he also randomly shoots some other person just in the crowd. Yeah, um, he seems uh, very casual about his shooting. I mean, he's also like lost a lot of blood. Maybe he's not all there. I mean, he was just like stabbed in the side like four times and left for dead. Maybe he was aiming for Bertha. Who knows? I don't know. I have no idea. I, I also want to point out that a lot of this is in slow motion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's probably overused. I think the, the slow motion is not overused here because if you didn't slow motion it, this would be like a four second scene. And you'd be like, oh, shit, what happened? I got to do a double take. I think but you could out I, about a minute. I think you could find a better balance. It would this be like a Quentin guess. Tarantino scene at that point, you know, where the everyone's got their Mexican standoff guns on each other, and then it just ends in like 1.3 seconds, and you have to like think about how exactly it went down. I I don't know. I like Quentin Tarantino scenes. So, either way, um, I kind of took it as she how has she's now armed and she can just you know wreck vengeance. I didn't really see, I I didn't really, I mean, I guess you can look at it as, okay, she's destroying this image of herself, you know, does does this mean like she has grown beyond what she was now and she's like resentful of what she was, this is now like a new beginning for her, is she shooting the audience for coming to this movie for like enjoying it, I mean, it's presumably people, most people paid a ticket fee to see this film and it's like, oh, you paid money to see this shit, like, fuck you. I can imagine one scenario where this was all supposed to be an origin story, where this is 
Ugum's rising above her trauma because in the next film in the series, she's basically going to be Pam Greer. She's going to be Coffee or Cleopatra Jones. She's going to be this toughened uh, female fighter of justice, right? I don't feel like this movie's doing that, though. I, I don't feel like it's trying to do that. And so she just comes across as like traumatized and so I don't really I can't I have a hard time imagining that her firing the gun is any like dominance or success story or justice right I mean one of the alternate titles of this film is Black Vengeance but that's more of a framing device than what you actually see on screen you sort of just have to make the you're the audience is left to their own devices to figure out what's going on at the end you also unless of course you know there's something something we're missing here from one of the other alternate versions well i was gonna say you you do i think you are inherently exploitive if you use black vengeance as your title like whether that describes the movie or not you know that's going to get more butts in the seats hmm that's my take anyway so i have a hard time taking titles like that seriously um or or i guess knowing whether they were actually intended for the movie by the creators but let's get final thoughts and oh i have the i have this this the shootout scene and going on in the background he does manage to kill the sheriff in a final shot epic epic yeah all right final thoughts rating out of four now we've been calling this movie low budget the whole time, but how much do you think they spent on that shootout with all those special effects, all the fake blood and the, you know, the the pop packets and whatever? It seems like it would have been expensive. Uh, I don't know. I think you can do. I, I think you could do most of that stuff cheaply, especially if you were like not working with union workers and paying people under the table. Like I imagine you could move things along much more efficiently but i don't know this this is a really surprising one for me i didn't really know what to expect i assumed this was going to be either like mild black exploitation or at least something where <laughs> you would have a more traditional narrative structure where you're going to follow the struggles of this jazz singer as she puts up with racists and discrimination and uh, senseless violence, and you know, and and that is what this movie is about. However, I still feel that the vast majority of this film is more focused on Eddie. This is a character exhibition. Again, we can't call it a study, right? Because we don't really get the whole backstory. But it's like an an, expi- an exhibition about Eddie as a psychopath in a very racially charged American South. And it is just punctuated with these bizarre, dreamlike directorial choices that I really feel gives this film a very distinct charm uh, i guess charm is a weird word to put it feel a really b- strange feel that really that i'm not gonna forget anytime soon 
this this one's gonna stick with me and i'm really curious about the other versions i want to see if this is like the odd one out if this one's like unusually brutal compared to the other ones i also want to know what the original edit was right like was the first film like super mediocre and then some savant took this shit and edited it into this like uh, you know southern nightmare there are two directors credited but we're specifically talking about this version. My only real gripe with this film is that I don't feel that that Liz as a character gets enough screen time. I don't feel like there's enough emphasis on her. I mean, obviously, she's a victim. We get that. And she does a very distinctive job portraying the victim that she's meant to be. Um, I, I remember like before we started talking about this film, I was just like, kind of like, why is she so muted in her response? But after we discussed it, it's, I think it's obvious even, well, at least I can rationalize the, the performance by thinking that she is just acting muted in her own best interest, that she can't overreact in this environment or shit will only get worse. The music, um, which we lightly touched on for the country, um, continues with some weird choices near the end where we get the um like the wedding procession music i can't think of you know here comes the bride there's like a take on it in the end that sounds like more macabre than yeah it's very bizarre it's very bizarre but it doesn't feel like contrite it feels like it belongs because this is like a nightmare sham of a wedding that's about to occur pace it i think the pacing of this film is great we have a problem sometimes on this show where we have a movie that has like a great first half and then like a very big lull and then a good ending that doesn't happen here i think there's always something even if it's not action there's something strange to focus on that that really again makes this a good and distinctive viewing experience from start to finish even if you don't agree with all of the writing choices the characters might seem a little much. Maybe that's because they're stage acting. But it doesn't bother me. I was able to take this film seriously, even if it wasn't meant to be. I don't know. Maybe that's a problem with me. But I, I was able to to sit down and become lost in this uh, this like fucked up framework that was presented to us. And I, I think overall, with the quality of special effects, the acting, the, the strange, strangely written like set pieces like set uh, like plot scenes i i think this is like this isn't four stars but i think this is a pretty distinctive film for me i'm, I'm gonna go three maybe three and a half might be really generous but there's something that hits just right with this film with how distinctly unique it is with its fucking schlock like it's not Again, maybe I'm seeing something that isn't there, but this doesn't just seem like sleaze to me. This is like artsy sleaze. And I appreciate that. That's better than just raw sleaze from like the straight from the sewer pipe. I'll take I'll take artsy sleaze. Uh, that works for me. You know, I, I don't think I take this movie as seriously as you do. And I, I don't think it was in, intended very seriously. I think that so, for example, there's old 1930s, 1940s uh, anti-drug movies or, uh, you know, Christian moralizing movies, these sorts of public interest like propaganda pieces. But 
now watching them they either come across as frightening and like eerie and bizarre and surreal or comical and ridiculous and over the top and i feel like exploitation movies were the same way where they were trying to make a movie stuffed full of like salacious things like violence and murder and rape that they could splash on marquees to get people to come to the drive-in or go to the grindhouse and sometimes there were filmmakers or writers or actors involved with these projects that had ambitions above their station um that were like i this might be an exploitation film but it's going to be a meaningful one you know they're going to invest those things with symbolism but even if not i think when you have a movie like this that deals with these racial archetypes in a way and dynamics like it that's imbued with so much symbolic meaning that it's always going to have some impact it's always going to have some weight even if i think it's kind of over the top and silly in other moments um so i don't know if this was intended or you know successfully a good movie but i do know it's an effective movie it's a very eerie and strange movie i had seen it a couple years ago but all that remained in my mind was like a fuzzy recollection of the most strange scenes in this movie like the dog sex scene um but i wasn't prepared for how weird it actually was until i revisited it uh and i was i was a little taken aback i did not remember it being so strange so regardless of the i i mean shelly winters is always fantastic this is i don't think this is one of her greatest performances but it's very much on brand and she very much fits the part and i think she makes the movie to a degree um Ugums is a little bit flat for me but it, she's not ineffective uh, all in all i'll agree with leland um I think I'd edge towards the, the the three as opposed to the three and a half, but solid three stars. All right, so let's consult the Magic 8-Ball and see what we're doing next week. All right, the, the ball has spoken. Next week, we're doing the 1984, another very strange movie, The Jar. Oh, this is on YouTube. Indeed it is. Yes. Have you seen it before? I was going to watch it this week, so that's, that's a good twist of fate. This is a... I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so it'll almost be like a fresh viewing for me. But it, if this movie we watched this week is strange, this is a, a few steps beyond. Is this shot on video? No, but I, it has to be like 8mm or something rough. But no, it's, it's, I, I'm pretty sure it's shot on film. I, I don't know a lot about this, so I'll do some research. Um, I know there's some different interesting theories floating around out there about like what this movie's really trying to say. So I might do some research and see what I can get into next week. I, I know that this is, I don't think this is a generally well-liked movie, but I know that there are people who passionately love it and defend it. And I think I'm probably 
closer to that camp. So I think this will be an interesting discussion. I am really curious uh, what you end up thinking about it. All right. So join us next week to talk about The Jar from 1984. Check it out if you haven't seen it already. Uh, and in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything that we do, and you interact with us there. Uh, Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Wonderful. We will talk with you all next week about the jar. Ha 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 